good evening. Uh, welcome to this uh, RA Forum event on writing architecture. Uh, my name is Jeremy Melvin. I'm the consultant curator for architecture here at the Royal Academy. And uh, this event, writing architecture, is obviously, as, as we are in this space, Gallery 3, in the shadow of Petzl on Elgerhausen in the exhibition Sensing Spaces, uh, very much to do with uh, our, our intention to uh, look at how we can sense, how we can understand, how we can think about architecture. Now, uh, this exhibition is very much uh, uh, Kate Goodwin's project. Um, I've uh, had very little to do with it. However, um, our colleague, Erin Hopkins, uh, and I have worked hard on, on the events program around this. And uh, we all thought it would be very useful to look not just at the way architecture induces sensations, which is happening all around us in each of the galleries in this exhibition, and indeed in the courtyard where Alvaro Caesar's enigmatic piece of uh, trabeated construction uh, is, is there to um, surprise and delight us. Uh, but we should also think about this very thorny issue of how uh, language is tied up with the way we experience, the way we sense, and the way we understand architecture. And uh, we are delighted to have a very strong lineup of speakers this evening. Um, first of all, our chair, um, Philip Ursprung from the ETH in Zurich. Uh, and then in order of speaking, Professor Viv Evans, Professor of Linguistics from the University of Bangor in Wales. Uh, Professor Adrian Forty from University College London. Uh, and Dr. Kester Rattenbury from the University of Westminster, uh, who are going to unfold different views of this. I'm not going to give away what they're going to say because I think I will leave uh, them to do that more eloquently than, than I can. However, I do want to open with a uh, couple of short quotes, which I think help at least to set the scene for what we're trying to talk about. Now, the first two are both by writers trying to uh, describe what they feel on going into Gothic cathedrals. And this is the first one. The effect on my feelings of one of our largest Gothic cathedrals in a gusty, moonlit night of autumn, now in glimmer and now in gloom, often in palpable darkness, not without a chilly sensation of terror, then suddenly emerging into broad yet visionary lights with coloured shadows, of fantastic shapes, yet all decked with holy insignia and mystic symbols and ever and anon coming out full upon pictures and stonework images of great men, with whose names I was familiar, but which looked upon me with countenances and an expression the most dissimilar to all I had been in the habit of connecting with those names. Those whom I had been taught to venerate as almost superhuman in magnitude of intellect, I found perched in little fretwork niches as grotesque dwarfs, while the grotesques, in my hitherto belief, stood guarding the high altar with all the characters of apotheosis. In short, what I suppose substances were thinned away into shadows, where everywhere shadows were deepened into substances. So that's uh, you know, an experience of walking into a Gothic cathedral, which we can probably all, to some extent, empathize with. And this is another writer. At first glance, my attention is captured. My imagination is struck by the size, the height, and the unobstructed view of the vast nave. For some moments, I am lost in the amazement that the grand effect of the whole stirs in me. But then this second writer goes on to say, 
recovering from the first astonishment and taking note now of the details, I find innumerable absurdities. So although these two writers, the first one is Samuel Taylor Coleridge, the second is Marc-Antoine Logier, um, one writing in the early 19th century, Coleridge in the early 19th century um, as part of Biographica Literaria, and uh, Logier in his Letters to the Architecture, I think of 1753. Um, and they both acknowledge the impact of a Gothic cathedral. This is Notre Dame, the one that Logier is talking about. Um, however, where one, the romantic Coleridge, allows his imagination to wander, and then tries to describe how it wanders and the effect of that wandering in language. For Logier, that wandering is slightly threatening. He has to regain his uh, attention and regroup, and then he begins to see the innumerable absurdities. I'm sure all of you have already begun to spot them there as well. So those are two different ways of thinking about the sensations that sensational pieces of architecture can have. Now, this, of course, is a... Uh, a, 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 a particular issue that, get, that comes to the fore in the 19th century is what is the relationship between architecture and language? And this building, the Bibliothèque Saint-Genevieve of uh, about 1850, uh, designed by Henri Le Brust, uh, is perhaps one of the most erudite and powerful ways of dealing with this relationship. Uh, I, I, I'm not going to go into detail. There's a magnificent paper by Neil Levine on it, for those of you who don't know. But you can see that he's playing with words, names, and then with architecture, which is recognizably part of the classical canon. Um, now, we often think that words are you know, useful instruments uh, and that architecture is vague and imprecise. Um, but here is a, a comment from the composer Felix Mendelssohn writing to a friend in 1842. He's obviously writing about music, but I think we can begin to see some analogies here with architecture. Um, people often complain that music is too ambiguous. Everyone understands words, but listeners do not know what they should think when they listen to music. But with me, it is the exact opposite. And not only with regard to an entire speech, but also with individual words. These two seem to me to be so ambiguous, so vague, so easily misunderstood in comparison to genuine music, which fills the soul with a thousand better things than words. The thoughts that are expressed by me in music that I love are not too indefinite to be put into words, but on the contrary, too definite. <coughs> in other words, what, what, what Mendelssohn is saying is that language is, is, is really hopelessly imprecise, where music has great precision. Now, I leave um, you with, with, with this before we, we, we get into the substance of what we're talking about, which, of course, the uh, memorial by Lutchens to the uh, British missing uh, on the uh, Somme, um, the First World War battle, <coughs> uh, those uh, people who, who are presumed dead but whose bodies were never found. Um, and here we see uh, a spatial imagination of the architect writ large, it looms over this part of the Somme Valley, this memorial. Um, but as you get closer to it, and, and you begin to see on the inside, the, out, sorry, the uh, outside uh, panels are not inscribed, but these inside ones here are inscribed with names such as these. And I think this sets up a play between well, where is the precision and the imprecision here. In some ways, the names are extraordinarily precise. They are just the names of individuals and their initials grouped into the um, regiments in which they fought and died. Um, yet somehow the building has a sharpness and a tautness as well, although in 
uh, bo both words and building come together um, to commemorate something which is perhaps itself unspeakable. So I'm now going to welcome uh, Philip Ursprung uh, to run the evening for us. Thank you so much. Uh, thanks for the invitation. It's an honor and pleasure to be here uh, tonight and to... Good evening. Good? <laughs> it's a uh, pleasure and honor to, to be here and to moderate this uh, round table. Uh, moderate in Switzerland usually means make sure that it ends on time. So this is my main duty, and besides that, I will, of course, leave the space to the speakers. Just one word that I'm also very happy to uh, host this or moderate this event in the exhibition space, because I think this is an, an, an important step in the discussion of architectural representation that we're witnessing here. It's, uh, I think, the first exhibition of this scope, this size, uh, that actually experiments in having architects uh, not representing something that's already built but producing something for the exhibition and having the spectators experience in, and witnessing it. And of course this is a challenge to many forms of representation, architecture, photography, film, but also writing. Uh, but I also would like to remark that there is very little writing in the space. Basically, it's a very large label that we have here. And this leaves a lot of freedom to the imagination of the visitors and viewers who can experience uh, what is here and see the room and also the artifact in new lights. But it also uh, challenges our concepts of writing architecture when we're confronted with such a little amount of writing. This is just what I wanted to say as an introduction. And um, we're going to start with uh, Viv. It's a great pleasure to be here. Um, I'm a professor of linguistics, so I'm not going to be addressing architecture per se, but I'm going to be talking about language, um, saying a little bit about what we know about how language works and how it conspires to facilitate meaning construction. And hopefully that will make some connections between the, the theme of writing architecture. So what I want to do is ask three specific questions and hopefully answer them. What makes language special, first of all, up here? What are the functions of language? And then what I want to do is talk about how language facilitates meaning construction. So first of all, what makes language special? We all have language. Language is integral to our lives. We know that. We use it every day to, to email, to make telephone calls, to flirt, to buy the grocery, and so on. What's interesting about language is, 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 it, is that it's implicit. Our knowledge of language, the, the knowledge that subserves it, is implicit. You might not necessarily know what the copula is, what the ditransitive construction is. Um, how to formulate tense and aspect combinations. But these are these terms, these labels that language scientists use. You can do all this. It's child's play for us. By the age of four, you are all linguistic geniuses. So the knowledge we have about language, about our mother tongues, is something internalized. We can't necessarily 
externalize it and explain what the rules of language um, are. It emerges developmentally. There's a specific developmental trajectory that's cross-linguistically robust. So all the languages, the 7,000 or so languages spoken today, emerge uh, along a similar time scale. By the age of 10, a child has more or less complete mastery, although language continues to evolve um, over the course of the lifespan. Human language is qualitatively different from uh, the language systems of other species. Um, in what it's, it, for one thing, it's combinatorially complex. It exhibits what linguists refer to as duality of patterning. So we can take sounds like p, i, t, and combine them in a range of different ways. We can make a word like pit or tip. So there's this double layer, sounds and words. And of course, we can combine words using the rules of, of grammar, of syntax, to make uh, a whole range of very complex sentences. Sentences, many of the sentences I'm producing now, are novel. You won't have ever heard them before. And of course, we can use language remarkably um, to facilitate uh, communication about entities that don't exist. We can imagine space. We can imagine new architectural designs. We can come up with things like dragons and unicorns and Superman. What a weird thing Superman is. Wears his underpants on the outside. And of course, language is not restricted to a particular modality. Although I'm speaking, I'm using the, uh, the auditory, the oral modality, there are around 130 signed languages that are recorded uh, which use the manual gestural modality. So as Bertrand Russell, the, the famous Anglo-American, um, uh, well, British philosopher said, no matter how eloquently a dog can bark, it cannot tell you that its parents were poor but honest. And of course, we can. And in slightly different terms, the American uh, wit, George Carlin, sadly dead now, said, meow means woof in cat. And of course, human language is a lineage. It's led the, the cognitively modern human beings, us, uh, have taken over two and a half million years of an uh, evolutionary trajectory uh, to result in or to give rise to language. About a half a million by, uh, languages, by one estimate, have existed since uh, our lineage first uh, created language. And our specific uh, species, Homo sapiens, is in fact not very old, no more than around 200,000 years. So language has, uh, has emerged relatively quickly, uh, at least in evolutionary terms. When we contrast this with, so two million years or so from, from the get-go, it's taken language to evolve. It took birdsong over 50 million, five zero million years to evolve in contrast. One of the interesting things, I think, about language is that different languages give rise to different worldviews. So language exhibits relativity, which can lead to a cognitive restructuring. So we think in terms, inspired in, in part by the habitual patterns that we use every day when we use language. So there's a language called Gugugumidir, which is a, an Aboriginal language spoken in parts of Australia. And in this language, you can't talk about, in terms of space and spatial relationships, you can't talk about finding things on the left or behind or in front. 
In this particular language, you don't say things like the sea went out, you have to say the tide goes west. They use an absolute frame of reference. They use cardinal points in order to describe spatial relationships of any distance, proximal and distal. And this leads relativity in terms of, uh, uh, in, from a relativistic perspective, to an enhanced ability to dead reckon with less than a 4% error rate, which is uh, very impressive. English speakers can't do that. Another language, Aymara, conceptualizes the future as behind them and the past as in front. From an English-speaking perspective, this is just plain nuts. I wanted to make these, uh, present these two examples to you, space and time, because it seems to me I'm not an expert in terms of architecture, but in, in one sense I am. I appreciate it. I live in a house. That's an architectural feat, isn't it? I sometimes go to the pub. Another example of fine architecture was some of the pubs I go to anyway. Time and space are indelibly linked, I think, to architecture, and so is language. Let me tell you a little bit about linguistic uh, diversity now. Um, so there are a, a range of ways in which we can think about language and cut up language. Languages have sound systems. Languages have morphology, which is to say bits of words that we join together to make larger words, as when we can say things like anti-disestablishmentarianism. Don't say that after five pints of beer. Syntax, which has to do with combining words to make uh, well-formed sentences, grammatical relationships, and so on. Now, the interesting thing, I think, is that languages are remarkably diverse in how they do all these different things that make up a language. Languages uh, range from 11 distinct sounds up to about 144 in some African languages. RP, Received Pronunciation in English, has around 46 distinct sounds to give you uh, an indication. Some languages, of course, lack sound altogether. Those are signed languages. Some languages lack this capability to join parts of words together. So Mandarin, for example, Chinese language, uh, Chinese, uh, is an example. Now this mouthful up here is an example of a language, an Inuit language, that doesn't have grammar, it doesn't have syntax. It makes sentences out of monster words. It joins bits of words together and in this particular language, this utterance means, do you have any tobacco for sale? Very useful in northern Canada, where this language is spoken. Okay, so what are the functions of language? It has two functions, a symbolic function, uh, first of all, and this is the idea that we use language to get ideas across, as you would expect. Now, to do this, what we do is we make use of four meaning pairings. We use a sound, with a conventional meaning associated with the sound. So, an example like cat is made up in English of three sound segments, and we have a, a conventional meaning associated with it. Words also consist of subparts, the past tense marker, ed, as in finished, clauses behind the sofa, and whole sentences. Now, what's interesting is that I think that the relationship between the form, 
and the meaning, the conventional meaning in language is completely arbitrary. So this particular instance, this is the idea, and we use in English, we use three sound segments to make up the word cat, but in different languages it's expressed in different ways. So in Hindi, do we have any Hindi speakers in the audience? In this particular language, uh, the word for cat is Billy. So the point is, exactly the same idea, or more or less the same idea, uh, takes a different form. The second function of language, so the first function was the symbolic, the second is the interactive function. We use language to do things in the world with real-world consequences. So someone who is appointed as a member of the clergy um, between two consenting adults can say, I now pronounce you man and wife, and notice it's this act, this speech act, that transforms the tax status of two individuals, the legal obligations that hold between them, and a range of other things, the demands that they can make, the legal demands uh, they can make with respect to one another, and the difficulty of getting out of the marriage once you're in it, if, if you do decide to get out of it. Neville Chamberlain, British Prime Minister, when he said in 1939, in an address to the nation on the BBC, a state of war now exists between us and Germany, by virtue of making that utterance, he brought this state of affairs, a legal, uh, legally recognized state of warfare, into, a, into being between two countries. Oops, what have I done? There we are. But even something quotidian like this, if I said to a student at Bangor University, please shut the door on the, on the way out, please. This is trying to, this is my attempt to influence someone's behavior to shape a dimension of the world. And this is what we do every, every day uh, using language. Language can also frame ideas, so words are associated with rich bodies of encyclopedic knowledge, which I'll show you in a second. So if someone describes a politician, for example, describes someone as a freedom fighter, or as, the, uh, sorry, as a terrorist, the, the, the so-called terrorist might describe themselves as a freedom fighter. So the very same person can be described in different ways with quite different implications. And this is a consequence of the fact that the words and expressions that we make use of are relativized with respect to large bodies of knowledge that we bring to bear when we use language. Okay, so how then, this is probably the most relevant part, I think, for the, the theme of this evening's uh, series of talks. How then does language facilitate meaning construction? So let's have a look at this. What I want to do, first of all, is just set this up with some of the things that I've just been alluding to, the encyclopedic nature of words and their meanings. So words are, and word meanings in particular are inherently flexible and the, their range of meanings really are better likened to an encyclopedia rather than a dictionary. So what I want to do is give you an example, focusing here on the little English word over. The picture is over the sofa. That means the picture is above the sofa. Yes? Everyone agree? But what about Southwark is over the Thames? Clearly, Southwark isn't floating above the River Thames. Here, over means something slightly different. It means on the other side. The clouds are over the sun. What does this mean? Well, over doesn't mean the clouds are over the sun. They can't be, can they? 
because the clouds here, from our earthbound perspective at least, are below the sun. Here over has to do with covering or occluding from view. You can't see the sun, a consequence of the clouds being in the way. She sat, has a strange power over me. This doesn't have to do with some weird levitational practice. This has to do with the meaning of, of over here, has to do with control. And the movie is over over here has to do with being finished or complete. Now, the, the point of showing you this is just to illustrate that a, a small, everyday word that we probably take for granted has a range of distinct conventional meanings associated with it. And you must all know this to be competent speakers of English. Now, what I want to do is illustrate the shape-shifting malleability of words. Words are inherently protean in the sense that linguistic context and other kinds of context, the venue in which an utterance is uttered can influence or coerce the meaning. So if we take fast, that car is going fast here, fast straightforwardly has to do with rapid locomotion. If we say though that parked BMW is fast, of course the car isn't moving, what does fast mean now? It means potential for rapid locomotion. The fast lane of the motorway, no one gets confused here. This doesn't refer to a, a motorway lane that somehow is, is, is taking on human attributes and speeding off after Usain Bolt. It has to do with a venue for rapid locomotion. So again, fast has had its meaning coerced by the linguistic uh, context. A fast girl is someone who is promiscuous, presumably. What, how does fast get that meaning? Fast food is a type of food that's served quickly, but it's a specific genre of food in addition. And fast asleep doesn't mean you go to sleep quickly. Well, it might do, but it tends to mean sound asleep. So the point here is that the linguistic context in which words are embedded coerces the meaning of the language, of the words. Now, the critical way in which we use language to mean things comes from an important design feature in modern human um, our, uh, cognitive architecture, so in terms of how our brains are configured. There is a distinction between the linguistic system on the one hand, our repository of word forms and meanings, and our conceptual systems. The conceptual system is, you can think about it as sort of the, uh, the area in our minds that houses human concepts and ideas. And this, the conceptual system is something we share with many other species. Many species have a conceptual system. They have to. This is our repository of ideas. We need concepts in order to be able to identify various things. A tiger running towards us is something you run away from. A potential mate running towards you is something you hopefully don't run away from. At least in evolutionary terms, that would be bad for the survival of the species. So we, we use concepts to categorize things in the world. But what we, what we use language for is to bootstrap these uh, ideas for purposes of linguistically mediated meaning construction. So language, if you like, indexes different aspects of the conceptual system to draw down from the conceptual system from our concepts when we use language to mean stuff. The real meanings reside not in language per se, been in our minds and the concepts that language uh, hooks onto. And I'm going to illustrate this with an example. 
So what I would like you to do, I'm going to do a quick experiment on you. I hope you don't mind. I did have prior ethical uh, clearance. I'm going to ask you to close your eyes and just imagine what hue of red comes to mind when I re read the sentence out, okay? So what you're focusing on what hue of red comes to mind. So everyone close your eyes. I promise this won't hurt. The teacher scrawled in red ink all over the pupil's homework. Thank you. You can open your eyes. Does everyone have the hue that comes to mind? What kind of red is it? Yes? Now here's another example. So close your eyes again. You're still focusing on red. The red squirrel is in danger of extinction in the British Isles. The red squirrel. You can open your eyes. Thank you very much for bearing with me. Now I'm guessing that for most of you, probably everyone, the kind of hue you had in mind for the first example is this. A truly bright, vivid red. Yes, is that right? Some of you are nodding. Good. And probably for the second example, it was this kind of red, a dun browny red. Yes? Okay, now my point with this example is to demonstrate that the meaning of red is not there in the word. It can't be, can it? The same word meaning two quite different things in a way. What's going on is that language is indexing the conceptual system and drawing down a perceptual symbol based on your vast experience of all things red and activating just the right part of the red color spectrum and drawing down. So language is providing an executive control system that's being coerced. You know which bit of the conceptual system to go and activate to get the correct perceptual hue. But the linguistic sentences in which red is embedded coerces which bit you go and fetch and draw down when we use language to mean. And this, in essence, is how meaning construction works. It's an interface between language, which provides this executive control system, and the conceptual system, which is uh, the repository of the multimodal uh, meanings that we often think of as being linguistic, but they're not. Now, in the introduction, it was mentioned that I'm at Bangor University, which is in Wales. So what I want to do is give you some information about some of the encyclopedic knowledge, the conceptual knowledge that you might have for Wales. And then I'm going to illustrate that with another example to show you how we use language to mean different things relating to Wales. So you might know that uh, Wales is a geographical entity of a particular sort. Here it is. This little bit is Wales. At the moment, there's no plans for independence. That was a joke, by the way. No one <laughs> pointed out, everyone laughs. Um, you might also know that Wales is a nation state of sorts. It has its own uh, government, the Welsh Assembly government, based in Cardiff Bay. You might also know there are one or two sheep in Wales. Around 9 million, I'm reliably informed, by Wikipedia, down from an 11 million high in 2009. So I'm not quite sure what happened between 2009 and now. But there really are a lot of sheep. Um, Wales is quite keen on rugby. Some of you may have heard. This is Sam Warburton, who's the, uh, the, the current Wales uh, national team captain. Let's get rid of that. What other stuff might we know about Wales? Well, you might know things about the Welsh culture. So 
In Wales, they speak Cymraeg, at least 22% of the population do, and the region of Wales where my university is based is the thoroughgoing epicenter of Welsh-speaking Wales. Um, they also wear weird things. This is the traditional dress for women in Wales. What else? Tourism. This is a picture of Harlech Castle, built by Edward I in the 1270s. So Wales is big for tourism. Okay, now here's the point then. So if we're talking about Wales, we could say Wales is a region of outstanding natural beauty. And we're focusing on Wales. What is the meaning here of Wales? Well, what's going on is that Wales is drawing down in this instance, coerced by the linguistic context, to go and find the geographical entity part of your conceptual systems and activate the right kind of knowledge that you draw upon in order to successfully interpret what this sentence might mean. If, if I said to you, Wales beat Ireland in the Rugby Six Nations, you have to go to a different region of your conceptual system. So you must have, to understand this sentence, you must have relevant knowledge about Wales as a rugby playing nation. Otherwise, it just doesn't work. Wales is an important, or not, player in UK politics. You have to go to the nation state part and look for all, everything you might know about Wales as a nation state, the fact it has, uh, we have devolution in the United Kingdom and that there is a, a national government that controls parts of the national spend and so on. So what this illustrates, I think, I hope, is that in terms of meaning construction and meaning making, there really is, uh, it's two parts involved. There's a symbiosis um, between conceptual knowledge and the organizational properties of the conceptual system and language, the two interface. And the, what makes us special as a species, I think, is that we've evolved this ability to have a linguistic system that provides an executive control function that other species don't have, allowing us to bootstrap things that other species do have, a conceptual system, for purposes of linguistically mediated meaning construction. One final example before I stop. Even grammar has meaning. So here's an example. These architects are designing my carbuncles. There's Prince Charles, no connection. Um, what I've done here, oh, and here is a carbuncle. Now, the point of this sentence is that what I've done is I've bolded certain words and certain elements in the sentence. And the elements that I've bolded are the grammatical components. So a word like these, the plural marker S, the B-I-N-G construction, which provides an auxiliary function on the main verb, which is design, my, which is a possessive marker, and again, the, the plural marker. So these are the grammatical elements that I've highlighted. Now, traditionally, language scientists assumed that these small bits of words were meaningless. However, these provide a scaffolding. So, these provide a scaffolding for meaning construction. So just as it is that there is a design feature for meaning making which involves language interfacing with the conceptual system, within the linguistic system itself, within language itself, there is a further design feature where we have rich words 
like architect, design, and carbuncle, working in tandem with grammatical function work elements, like the plural marker, like these and my and so on. And the, the bolded elements provide a scaffolding, a structural component, a structural rendition, if you like, across which the richer meanings get draped, which can then interface with rich concepts. So let me just show you that if we strip away architect, design, and carbuncle, what is the meaning that's left? This is the meaning that's left. These somethings are somethinging my somethings. Another way of putting this is that more than one entity close to the speaker is presently in the process of doing something to more than one entity belonging to the speaker. This is a huge amount of information. So the point is, my point is, that meaning construction in language is a, uh, an interface arrangement between language, a language system, and a conceptual system. Many species have a conceptual system, only we have language. Within language itself, there's a further design feature, which is there are grammatical elements that provide a scaffolding across which the rich words, what, a, what linguists refer to as the open class words, nouns, verbs, adjectives, and so on, which are draped across and which do the drawing down of the concepts. And between all three elements, so all three components, that's the conceptual system, these rich words and the grammatical words, therein meaning arises. Thank you very much. Thank you very much uh, for this um, outlining of the territory. Uh, I think we should continue right away and have the discussion after all three speakers. So uh, Adrian is going to be next. Perhaps better if I hold this, I think. Okay, well, the proposition of this exhibition is that it is possible to experience architecture as unmediated sensation. Um, I think if you've had a chance to see the exhibition, it is the expectation that merely by seeing these things, they offer to you something which you could not otherwise obtain. Now, I want to put to you a slightly different view. And this view is that Architecture is not a single medium practice. Uh, for as long as architecture has existed in its modern form, uh, that is to say, uh, since architecture became uh, the activity of artists rather than artisans, which took place, started to happen in the 15th century. For as long as it's been in the hands of artists, uh, architecture has relied upon a combination of medium. It has relied upon building, upon drawing, and upon language. And to those have been added more recently photography, film, and now digital media. All these things are part of what makes up architecture. And I want to suggest to you that it's not possible to think about architecture or to deal with architecture without 
some combined relationship between all these things. Now, according to your point of view, these media will have different values. And it must be said that the balance uh, of these different media has always been contentious. Uh, a lot of the argument that takes place in architecture, in, in architectural education, is about the relative importance or one or other of these media, building, drawing, writing, photography, film, which is more important in relation to architecture. And there's no answer to this. There's no answer as to what is the proper place of each medium within uh, the making of architecture. Now, these combinations of media have a part to play in both the making of architecture and also in its reception. This exhibition is about reception. It's not really concerned with making. It's about reception. It's about how we receive architecture. And I think the suggestion that it makes is that what matters is the direct reception of the object, unmediated by anything else. Okay, so let's now think about the relationship specifically between architecture and language. Uh, I'm going to ignore for the moment these other media that make up, um, uh, sorry, between, yes, between architecture and language, or between language and building. I'm not going to think about drawing and so on, photography. Now, if we think about the relationship between drawing and building, it would clearly be, it's naive to think that building can be translated into language. Building is one sort of activity, language is another. You cannot make language do building or building do language. They are distinct. Um, and they have different properties. We've had a very clear exposition about the properties of language uh, the properties of building are entirely different. So there is no sense in which whatever it is that building does can be totally and literally translated into language. Nonetheless, um, there are some things to be said about the relationship between them. And what I think we have to do is to try and understand, well, actually well, what's different about them. Now, the feature of building, uh, as perhaps also of photography, is that it's a truth-telling medium. It's always authentic. The building is itself. It cannot be anything else. It's bound to its own reality. It tells a truth. In much the same way, a photograph in the pre-digital era, anyway, an analog photograph, is always tied to whatever it is a photograph of. It is a direct uh, indexical uh, uh, image taken from the thing itself. It is authentic. Now, the peculiarity of language is that it's not like this. Language is, by nature, fictional. Language always tends towards the fictional. Language, one can say, is impotent towards its own authenticity. 
it's impossible to make language utterly truthful in the way in which a building or a photograph can be. We have all sorts of devices in order to make language seem truthful. Uh, people sign and witness documents. Um, we have logic. We have sworn affidavits. There are all sorts of things that people do to try and establish the authenticity of language. But there is always this possibility that when somebody speaks in words or writes something, it's about something that doesn't exist, as we've just heard. One of the features of language is that you can communicate things that do not exist. And there is no way of telling, short of one of these devices, as to whether what is being spoken about is truthful or untruthful. So we have an essential difference between verbal language and building. Building is tied to truthfulness. It's tied to reality. Language has this opportunity, and I see it as an opportunity, to be untruthful, um, to be fictional. Now, this might seem to be a handicap um, if we're trying to equate building and language. But in fact, it's a freedom. Because what language offers in relation to building is an ability to do things that building can't. Building is good at communicating its authenticity but it's extremely bad at conveying generalities. If you want generality, language is very good at that, but it's not good at communicating authenticity. It's easy to signify nuances, to suggest things through metaphors in language, to make it possible to see one thing as if it's something else, and so on in language. Language offers this, this freedom to see things in other ways than we might otherwise see them. In building, it's not easy to do that. It's clumsy. If you want to signify a nuance in building, um, your, your work is going to be cut out for you. It's hard. Um, and furthermore, just to kind of give another example of what language is good for, it's good for storytelling. It's easy to tell stories in language. It lends itself, because of its fictional nature, to the telling of, of stories. Building, on the other hand, is relatively inefficient at doing this. And although Ruskin and others have argued that it's the business of architecture to tell stories, um, it's a clumsy device. And Often, in fact, what happens is somebody else has to tell the story for the architecture. It can't do it on its own. Um, it relies upon a critic uh, or a poet or somebody else to come along and say, this is the story that's being told. Um, the building itself is mute. So we've got a contrast here between what architecture and building is good for and what um, language is good for. And I'm reminded of that quotation that Jeremy read us at the beginning from Mendelssohn, who commented that the problem about language was that it was too indefinite. 
whereas music was definite. And it's the same difficulty, I think, in relation to uh, building and language. That building tends to be definite, um, whereas language is indefinite. And we've, again, I think we've heard some of the mechanisms through which the indefinite nature of language works. Finally, I just would like to say a little bit about reception. Now, there's no doubt that it's possible to have a unique personal experience, whether if it's of a Gothic cathedral uh, or of an exhibition installation like this, that each one of us can come along and feel something in relation to uh, a work of architecture. And that's clearly important, that that's, it communicates directly to us. But I would suggest that this is of no account unless we can communicate what we feel to someone else. There are various ways in which we may communicate this feeling. We can do it through drawings, we can do it through photographs, but especially we can do it through language. We rely upon language in order to exchange with other people whatever it is that we feel from something. So what I would say is that language is what makes building come alive in social terms. If architecture is, as it's sometimes said to be, a social art, its existence is predicated upon our ability to speak about it. We have to be able to speak about what it is we feel in order to confirm to somebody else that we have felt it. For architects, for critics, for all of us, the challenge is to be able to speak about what we experience. This is not something that's easy to do, necessarily, uh, and it's a facility that is uh, only acquired with practice, uh, but it's necessary for some kind of transsubjective experience of architecture to happen. Unless we can share what we feel with other people, uh, it would seem to me that our experience is of little or no account. Language is what allows architecture to become transsubjective. And really just to uh, paraphrase Wittgenstein, let me say that what cannot be spoken about does not exist. In order to have architecture, we have to be able to speak about it. Thank you very much, 1840. So, Kestra uh, um, would be the last speaker, and then we'll open up for, for questions. Have I got to get this to the right height? Is that right? Is that okay? Thank you. Well, I'm actually an architectural writer and teacher, but um, what I've done is, I think what Adrian would call, I've collapsed into fiction. And one of the reasons that I've, I've done this is because it, it kind of seems to be much richer 
to me, a much richer environment of writing. Novels make you imagine another place that seems to be the medium in which they work. It's an absolutely extraordinary thing. They, and novelists can make you do all kinds of things. They can make, they, they obviously, they give you a setting, a plot, uh, they, can do, they can generate um, ideas about character, about structure, polemic. They can make you see things in your head. They can give you this weird alternative worlds which people kind of share and join in. Um, and they can even act as sort of public opinion campaigns. So it's really extraordinary stuff. Architects have usually ignored this kind of thing. Again, Adrian talks about how modernist discourse largely ignores description, which is where most of this happens. Um, uh, and it's, it's probably just as well, actually. I quite like it that architects haven't looked at it much. Unfortunately, it's changing now. But um, it's a fabulous, uncharted area which you can actually explore. And it's both fictional and real. The relationships between them are extremely complicated. All kinds of real things happen when you read a book or when people write a book. The, the sources which the novelists are using are normally real sources, sort of edited together. What you're seeing are possibly sort of amended or shaped by the, your own experience of places. So you're making up something which is altered by what you're seeing. Um, of course, the books are real themselves, they're physically real things, the language is real in the peculiar way that language is real. Um, uh, and the writing, what, what it makes you do is real, although neuroscientists, again, have only just kind of got onto it, how it works, this weird spatial imagination. And they have real effects, as language does. It, it kind of, they make things happen in the real world. Um, so, for instance, uh, Thomas Hardy, which is what Jeremy asked me to speak about, who's known as a very real novelist, um, who's famous for having created this fantastic, rich evocation of the past. Now, um, of, a, of a sort of vanished rural past, incredible, in incredible detail, incredibly popular. Now, Hardy was also an architect, and he's considered to be a very, very bad architect, a lousy architect, in fact. This is because of his house, Max Gate, which he designed for himself, which is a sort of bourgeois suburban villa. Um, and here's John Fowles, another really fantastic novel, novelist of place, writing about it. There is, I think, no greater shock in English literary biography than to go round that far from distinguished villa just outside Dorchester, set on its rather bleak upland. It neither matches that environment, which he has made so vivid in words, nor any conception of Hardy gained from his books, and can conform rather painfully to almost every prejudice we may have against late Victorian tastes and the middle-class ethos behind it. To stand inside Max Gate and remember what came out of it, Tess of the D'Urbervilles, Jude the Obscure, the Dynasts, the countless poems, that's when most of us feel we should give up trying to understand great writers. We come expecting the palace of the maker of a fabulous kingdom and we are faced with a brick mediocrity more suitable to a successful local merchant of his time than anything else. Now, do you see what Fowles is doing there? He goes to somewhere real to imagine somewhere imaginary. He expects to understand it better, both the place and the work, by putting the two things together. And John Fowles is not alone. Pretty well every literary biographer does this, and many critics, and millions and millions of readers. A vast, real tourist industry grows up around novelists' imaginary places. Hardy was fielding tourists looking, from Wessex, looking for Wessex from really quite early in his career. So was Walter Scott, so were the Brontes. In fact, there's a plaque on a ruin on the moors outside Haworth, some of you may have been there, which explains very firmly that this is not Wuthering Heights. 
And the thousands of people who come there every year do not, ref do not believe it, and they're quite right to, be to not believe it, because partly there is some evidence that it was the kind of set, it might have been the setting for the landscape, for the place, the house, as lots of fictional places are, is kind of grafted in from somewhere else but partly because that's the way fictional places work. They're kind of put together in your head. So, um, Hardy's novels did something very, very peculiar. Um, they started to give access to the past, a real tough, gritty, also very lush and enjoyable version of a countryside which was vanishing. They told you all kinds of things about it, how to milk cows, feed a threshing machine, how to cure sheep of the bloat, how to lash hayricks in a thunderstorm, all very useful with this, um, how far you could walk in a day. Um, and this was very interesting. Hardy was an architect, and his earlier experiments in writing were, were much more experimental. They're very architectural, in fact. They're kind of like architectural drawings. All of his writings are like architectural drawings. But um, instead, of, they're precise, scripted, framed. They use all kinds of different media. But but they're not architectural drawings, of course, they're, and they're not instructions to build, they're instructions to imagine. They're also very experimental, they do all kinds of other things. He makes things move, he mixes in paintings and, um, and architectural drawings, all kinds of things. He predicts cinema, incidentally, in, in a lot of detail in the way that he works. Um, but the, what the critics really liked were the ones that seemed to be real, the ones that had a, had a real reality to it. And he started off a huge debate, a huge national debate about whether his descriptions were real. Um, so one critic said rather snidely, oh, they're the nearest, the nearest uh, thing to real experience that any of us are likely, the nearest uh, equivalent to real experience any of us are likely to experience. Others said that they weren't real. Henry James, who unbelievably called Hardy verbose and redundant, which that's a pot calling the kettle black, isn't it? Said, um, the only things we believe in are the sheep and the dogs. So they kicked off this enormous debate about whether his language was accuracy. And the reason was Hardy was writing for urban population, mainly urban critics, the same problem we have now, actually, uh, which m had left the land in the great change, huge change. They'd forgotten about what rural living was like. And he was recreating it. Now, Dickens had a very similar kind of thing when he wrote Oliver Twist, which was his first real London novel, a really amazing description of, of London. And you know, Oliver kind of walks right across it from one end to the other, absolutely fantastic. Um, but one of the things that happened was that Jacob's Island, where Bill Sykes dies, uh, they were kicked off a huge debate about the, the rural conditions, the conditions of the urban poor and how dreadful they were. And a lot of politicians made a real fool of themselves by saying, this is just fiction, this is nonsense. Actually, it wasn't. Dickens knew far more about London than the, than the politicians did, and his readers did as well. The fiction was actually more accurate than the fact. And this happened in Wessex as well. Um, it became very well known that Hardy was writing very accurately, that he had this huge wealth of knowledge and he was conveying it to people. And he became very conscious of, of using how he used this. He talked about it a lot. He talked about it being a part real, part dream land and about colluding with his writers in imagining it. Um, and he started developing it as a kind of virtual archive, a kind of virtual archive of the past. 
Uh, he made it more coherent. He edited together all the place names so that there was a sort of topographical unity. He re-edited his earlier work so it all made sense. He put in more descriptions. He researched it more. He, uh, his, the next book that he wrote after all this big debate had kicked off was The Mayor of Casterbridge, where he described Casterbridge as an urban town, and then he gradually worked out, out of it. Readers wrote asking him for maps. He gave them maps. I think the um, map in the return of the native, which is this beautiful planometric, very odd drawing, very architectural, um, is the first time it was, a map was printed in a novel. He then developed all the Wessex maps, which are much more normal, uh, much, in a way much less interesting, except that they've been reproduced so often. It's become this way of dealing with Wessex, of dealing with the, the real past of Dorset and southwest England. He also wrote a lot of factual work, which was a sort of footnote for the fiction um, so he wrote essays about all the things he was writing the novels about, about Dorset, about rural life, about conservation, very interesting work about conservation, about archaeology, about construction, about how people lived, and about his own work, a kind of media theory, we'd call it now, um, about the sort of strange nature of what he, what, how Wessex was developing. But this meant that things started threading through from the fact to the fiction. So uh, while he was building Max Gate, they found Roman graves in the, uh, in the, in the uh, excavations. He wrote a paper about it. He presented it to the Dorsetshire Natural History Society, uh, Archaeology Society. Um, and, but, and it kind of took a while to get published. Meantime, those graves turned up in Casterbridge, in the mayor of Casterbridge. And this happens all the time. Things turn up in, one, in the novels, which are in the, in the uh, fictional writing. Uh, some, sometimes one comes first, sometimes the other. So it becomes this very coherent, kind of accurately footnoted piece of work. And as it became more real, it also became more abstract. He started writing these... Um, essays, uh, introductions about how, what, what it meant about this real, the, the sort of balance between um, the real and the dream. Um, it, he, uh, he describes most beautiful, uh, oh, he became involved with the tourism, very interestingly. He started talking, um, uh, lots of people started visiting, visiting Wessex, and people wrote to him for information. He started helping them, rather to their surprise. He told them where the place names were, he told them... Um, where to find the various places he wrote kind of introductions for bits of it he uh and he um made friends with a photographer and kind of directed him how to photograph uh wessex and those photographs especially the later ones which he had more input into are very definitive now very kind of beautiful sort of precise accurate versions of wessex he was like this with his illustrations as well he must have been held to work for he sent his illustrators to go and draw the exact thing mostly they just ignored him but the ones that he the ones that did it you can see there's a real kind of change they're really fantastically good illustrations and and he talks about how odd all this is for instance he says I've been honoured by so many inquiries for the true name and exact locality of the hamlet Little Hintock, in which the greatest part of the action of this story, this is the Woodlanders, goes on, that I may as well confess here once and for all that I do not know myself where that hamlet is, more precisely than explained above and in the pages of the narrative. To oblige readers, I once spent several hours on a bicycle with a friend in a serious attempt to discover the real spot. But the search ended in failure, though tourists assure me positively they have found it without trouble and that it answers in every particular to the description given in this volume. 
Most intriguing of all, though, probably, is the conservation work. There's a really amazing study, very little known study, by a man called Claudius Beattie, now dead, um, which just goes into all his conservation work in a lot of detail, and it's very, very odd. Um, he joined SPAB at a very, uh, Society for Protection of Ancient Buildings early on in its uh, life, and first of all, he acted as a caseworker, and, and he realized very early the question was one of influence, SPAB didn't have any power, and the buildings that they were campaigning about, they had all the arguments, everything was fantastically well set out, but they were still getting demolished. It, it was a kind of losing battle. But he realized that he had this real hotline to public opinion, which he started to use, and you could not get better um, PR for the early conservation movement than the mayor of Casterbridge. It is fantastic, everything, the pubs, the houses, the streets, the walks, um, the relationship of the town and the country, the age value, how it's kind of used, um, the accret accretive value of the past, the social conditions. Um, he surely saved more buildings through the mayor of Casterbridge than he did through SPAB. Um, Beatty goes into a lot of, Beatty, who did this study on, on him, uh, goes into a lot of detail and uh, sort of unearthed all these letters in the archive which are really, really interesting. Um, for one thing, when there was a, a pub, a very beautiful Elizabethan pub in Maiden Newton, I think it was, which was demolished, which they, he'd been campaigning to save. And when it was demolished, he wrote it into about three different works of art, as, and Beatty says he was absolutely determined that it should not be forgotten. So this kind of idea of the fictional world being a repository of the past was incredibly important. But he also starts to use it as a campaigning tool. So when Puddletown Church was going to be restored, um, and SPAB, where Hardy was campaigning for SPAB to try and get that stopped, um, he, he says, he makes all the kind of usual arguments and the proper conservation arguments and suggests the proper way of going about. And then he says, may I say that, may I add that curiously enough, the church happens to be the village church of the novel, Far From the Madding Crowd, which brings many visitors to it every year, particularly Americans. I may say privately that I cannot help feeling that if expostulation fail, and as soon as the society feels sure of its ground, a letter to the Times on the matter, adding the fact that it is the church of this well-known no novel, might be effective. You will quite understand that my own view on an imaginary story of mine makes no difference to the case. But some of the public think otherwise, it would be well to enlist, enlist their sympathy, even though we suppose it bestowed for foolish reasons. And he was quite right. The letter did go to the Times. There was an outrage, disproportionate reaction. I'm not sure. I think they did it again later anyway, but it did stop things briefly. Um, fiction can be a lot more active in the real world than fact. I think I'll stop there. Thank you so much, Kester. Uh, I now propose that we all gather at the table and start a discussion. So thank you very much for these different uh, points of view. Uh, perhaps to, to start with, I would ask a question to each of you. And normally I should say, are there any questions? But if I do that, there's going to be a pause anyway. <laughs> so this leaves you time to think about the questions that you then would ask. After these three questions, I will ask, are there any questions? As an art historian, I cannot dis 
distinguish or cannot separate artifacts from language. Uh, and I always had to look at, I will call it this, to start with. <laughs> so my first question would go to Viv. If I'm a member of this ethnic group in northern Canada that aggregates language to the is there tobacco for sale sentence, would I see this differently than I do now? Thank you. That, that's a very good question. I mean, I, I would disagree slightly with the proposition that, that language is fictional and that architecture is something, in some sense, non-fictional, objective, and so on. Um, I think what, one thing that language, using language, I will answer your question, using language um, does for us is it demonstrates there is no such thing as a God's eye objective reality. We create in part our reality through language. And one way that is achieved is through language as a series of cognitive routines, which is to say the habitual patterns that, that language uh, affords us. So different languages do have quite markedly, in some cases, surprisingly distinct worldviews directly as a consequence of uh, the language they speak. Just to give you one example, one simple example, uh, we now know that, let me just back up, in Greek, there are two words for blue. There is a word for dark blue and for light blue. English does not have that distinction, we just have the bog standard word blue. Now it turns out that at a pre-conscious level, at a pre-attentive level, so this has now been established by neuroscientists, that Greek speakers perceive, they, they make fine discriminations in the uh, colour spectrum of the blue that English speakers do. Direct their, their cognition, their not just their cognition, but the perceptual apparatus has been amended by virtue of a distinction in their language. Now how would, to answer your question, how would um, Inuit speakers what would they make of this? I don't know. But it's a very good question. My, my guess would be that, in part, the world view and how you appreciate things is shaped in, in, in partly at least by language, but also it's more than that. Language is a, re a reflection of a culture, cultural behaviour, um, and the two work in tandem. So, and in part, of course, uh, appreciation of art, uh, of architecture. Um, is a consequence of the culture in which you're embedded. And these things also change over time, don't they? Um, so, Inuit speakers, what would they make of this? That's a very good question, but my guess would be that this would be slightly different from what we might make. Thank, thank you very much. So, my second question will go to, to Adrian. You also already started uh, with uh, the observation about the authenticity, and of course, uh, have to ask this. Can you describe uh, what is authentic about this? Well, it can't escape from its authenticity. It's there. It, you know, I turn my head away and open my eyes again, and it's still there. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's not a figment of my imagination. It's, it's real. Okay, that's, real. That's, that's its authenticity, and I can measure it and um, tell you what materials it's made of and all the rest of it. 
which would be further proof of its authenticity. That's what I mean by its authenticity, is that it's, it's stuck with its own reality. It can't turn into something else, which as soon as I start talking about it, and if I were to close my eyes and face the other way, and I started to describe it to you, then I might describe to you something which bore no relation to what we're looking at, or a very poor relation to it, but it might be something else. So that the language provides, it both fails to communicate the authenticity, but it reveals something else. And that's, that seems to me to be the, the, the interest. In relation to you and to the uh, North Canadian observer, it, it would be the same? Oh, going back to the Canadian, North Canadian observer, <coughs> would I have the same reaction as him? Well, I, I, I really don't know, but given that he has, uh, or she has different language um, skills or different language tools available, then what they will communicate about it will almost certainly be something different or something slightly different. Um, but uh, yes, I mean, we are, we are prisoners of our language. What, we can only think what the language allows us to think. That's, I think, is, is the reality. <laughs> okay, third question goes to, to Kester. This, this will be dismantled in five days, no? Six, seven days, and then probably discarded, or disappear. Uh, how, what do you think, um, would the memory of this be um, conserved more vividly or effectively in guise of images or in guise of narrations? Um, I would, well, actually I've, I found it very interesting this one because everyone says different things about it and although there it is, it's also um, kind of, it, depending on your language and your frame of reference that you're looking at it through, it is, it is a bit different. So was it? Leon van Schaik, who was saying earlier, talking about Rossi, and it's obviously Rossi, which I, I haven't really thought about it like that. I think it's a kind of, but, but there, there are sort of frames of reference that people have which are very, very clear to them, coming from certain sorts of perspectives. So I think it's already got its own kind of internal histories. And the thing about the Inuit, or I really love this sort of alternative viewpoints, I think it's fantastic. Um, uh, I think it's already there. I mean, I, I don't know what other people are seeing when they look at it. It may not be the same as what I'm seeing at all. Uh, from my point of view, I would say it's pr probably better conserved in words, but that's because I'm a writer and that's kind of where my head's at, basically. So that is how I think of it. And the things that I think about it are uh, not necessarily the photographable things, because one of the things about it is that it's you know, it's got a very strong physical form, but it's quite different when you go around it. This, which is my favorite piece, and you know, moving around it, going up, get, being up in the roof, you know, it's the one that really takes on the building and make you experience something very, very strongly. So for me, that's some, that particular experience is certainly one which it's much easier to describe than it is to photograph. You could film it maybe, but then that's, that's also got that kind of 
architecty reduced kind of aspect to it, maybe. Thank you. So this is the moment. Are there questions here? Here, please. Okay. Uh, thank you. Yeah, I've I've really got an issue, like other people have, with um, Adrian talking about buildings are what they are because. I can look at that and think, there's a lot of firewood. And if I take <laughs> a match and set fire to it, um, it, it is a fire. That's what it is. And sitting in the straw house earlier, for example, that was a building changing all the time. And watching what people were doing with the straws, the building material on the floor, there was a woman picking, it, picking them up and putting them in a bag because they are rubbish. And there were other people taking them out of the bag to use as building materials. And so... Kind of, it's, it's what people do, you know, in a house, a building can be a prison or a sanctuary, depending how you see it, so there you are. Um, <laughs> how do I respond to this? Well, uh, yes, I mean, we're, certainly buildings will arouse different responses in us, and we will see different things in them. Um, but the reference is always the same. Uh, the case in language is that what it, it produces is a mental imagining. The thing that matters in relation to language is not the words on the page, it's the image that is uh, generated in your mind. That is, you know, that's the, what you're trying to do with language. You're, you know, it's not just the sake of stringing up words across a page. It's in order to be able to produce something which is, as, as Kester says, it's instructions to imagine. Whereas this, you might imagine things about it, but you're still stuck, I would say, with the thing. Maybe it's hard work, I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, please. Thank you. Um, I have had the experience sometimes when I've got an idea of something in my mind, something I'm remembering, a building, let's say, and I can't remember whether or not I've read about it or I've heard about it or I've seen it in real life or I've seen it in a photograph, but it's there just the same. Um, it exists whether or not it exists in real life. And of course, if you go too far down there and you can't tell the difference between reality and fiction, then you get to a tricky place. But I think that probably most people have had that experience at one time or another. It makes it seem fairly self-evident to me that um, if you take experience as the central point of all of this, really there isn't much difference, as far as your remembering self goes, between a physical object and between language itself. I think that, um, for me, the fundamental difference is between when you experience something, whether it's by reading it or seeing it, and when you try to transmit that experience to someone else. Um, so my question is really about not the difference between language and architecture, but receiving experience and trying to transmit that to someone else. And to pick up, just to finish off with, on something that Professor Forty said, which is that we have to be able to speak about our experience in order to really validate it, and, and otherwise it, it's not of much account. Um, without wanting to be rude, to me it seems like that's patently absurd because you can experience something and not say it to someone else and you remember it 
in exactly the same way. I think it, it privileges the kind of the work that, that maybe you do and that someone who walks into a park or a church or anything and sees something experiences that in the same way. So I wonder if you could comment on what you think the difference is between uh, reading about a building and writing about a building. You can start. <laughs> well, uh, just to go back to this, this point about it, clearly you know, there is transcendental experience. Religion relies upon this possibility that there can be experiences that are incommunicable. Um, but there's a problem, isn't there? We all know what it is. Um, how do we know that this experience that the mystic has is one that they really had? Um, or in you know, what sense? So, you know, there's that whole you know, discussion around what, what a unique individual experience might be. Uh, and I'm, all I'm suggesting is, in a way, a kind of pragmatic thing that in order for us to be able to know for certain that it's there, it has to be communicated um, with, with other people. So I acknowledge that there is this, this difficulty there. Um, I'm, I'm going to stop there, but I might come back to it. I just want to say <laughs> yeah, I'll have about it. Uh, yeah, yes, we will. <laughs> well, I was going to talk about language, actually, because I think one of the reasons that spatial experience is such an incredibly rich field is because we don't have much of a language for it. We, do, or we don't have a very scientificized, horrible, sorry, uh, a, a, a scientific framework for it. There is what Adrian talks about, the sort of modes developed by architectural writing. And as he talks about, there's a kind of problem between them. They have, they, they have kind of different values and different criteria. But um, I think that I mean, I'm, I'm very interested in all the kind of neuroscience work and everything because it seems very, very strong to me, spatial imagination, and it seems to be stronger than the language that describes it, which is why it's so rich, I think, and it's what, I think it's why novelists have such a good time of it because they're not bound by any laws except for the ones they make up themselves. They don't have any obligation to be real. They don't have any obligation to, you know, be measurable on any research quotient or anything like that. They can just they can just play with it, they can just experience it. So they can write, they, could, they can go from dream to reality as one has, thing. You know, did, I, did I imagine that church or is it a real place that I just can't remember where it was? They, they can do that easily and language can do that easily. And as soon as you kind of start pinning it to a, a sort of scientific knowledge base, it becomes much, it, it sort of stultifies it to a certain extent. So to me, I think it's the, the poor match of language, which makes it so intriguing, but also so rich. It makes it work so well, because you have to just describe it, and you have to kind of guess. The gap is very big that you kind of ask people to leap across. Can I just briefly come in? Just as a sort of a rejoinder, I think that's an excellent question, rejoinder to my colleagues. Um, I think that it seems to me that um, in terms of this question as to how would you describe that, and what is the relationship between that and language and this notion of a reality and, and language perhaps being fictional and creating reality and so on? I think it seems to me what we do when we appreciate architecture is that we, we, it evokes in us a response which is variable. It varies from time to time, from place to place. Um, even 
um, as you mentioned, going around the back of this, you have a different perspective. And I think that's one of the powerful things about language, that it facilitates this different, uh, this mode of uh, enabling different perspectives. So just to give you an example that's non-architectural, um, we have in English um, two words for exactly the same strip of land. And those words are coast and shore. They refer to the same strip of land, but they approach that same strip of land from a very different perspective. So a trip that is coast to coast is across the land. But if you're out on the lake or the sea, you're looking at the shore, you have a different perspective. And this is what language facilitates for us. So the, there is a, a grammatical distinction between active and passive voice. The active is when you have the agent of the action in the subject position. So I might say that Shakespeare wrote Romeo and Juliet. But I could equally make that into the passive and say Romeo and Juliet were written by Shakespeare. And what I'm doing is I'm actually tweaking the meaning because what I'm conveying is a different perspective. I'm providing a perspective now from that of the, the artifact, the written work that was produced by the playwright. And I think it might be a red herring, perhaps, to focus too much on a reality and a fiction, lang language perhaps being fictional and, and the architecture being reality. I think they, they, they work together, it seems to me, um, in facilitating the, this, this notion of the perspective which changes and evolves for us, a response to great pieces of architecture. We might go from seeing something as a cop uncle, heaven forfend, um, and appreciating it later on. So things shift and change. Can I just butt back in again? Because um, while you were talking, what I'd, what I'd originally started wanting to talk about till Jeremy reined me in was I was going to start by talking about Patrick O'Brien's seafaring books, the incredibly popular really, really brilliant descriptions. And what he does, he did a lot of historical research and he immerses himself in people's language and he describes things from all these different viewpoints. And it's amazing because you kind of realize that the world is limited partly by what you see and partly by what you know. It's kind of Napoleonic Wars, for those of you who don't know it, and sort of to do with navigation and warfare and uh, uh, science and spying and all kinds of things. So there's a lot of things about and it's described very visually. So there's a lot of things about what you see and what you know. And that it's quite clear, because there's so many of them, that these things aren't the same. And it depends on the weather. It depends on fog. It depends on what information you know, all those kinds of things. So it gives you quite a different picture of the world, which is much more mutable. And it, it talks about time and space, basically, because it's global. It's not um, the, the idea about sunrise and sunset. And the whole of naval language has all this kind of incredibly rich thing about um, to raise a spire, which is when you come over the horizon and the spire appears to rise. And it looks as though it's raised, but it's just you've come over the horizon, so it's come, that sort of thing. I just found all that incredibly interesting. Sorry. <laughs> I, have, I have two more questions. Yeah. Um, really, I want to provoke a shift, which is, Adrian, you mentioned that you can talk about architecture in terms of its reception, and I think we've almost entirely focused on that rather than architecture in its making. And I think architecture and architecture use words in their making, but in a very different way to the way you've been discussing. Often it's ungrammatical, incomplete, grunts and encouragements. They have a very limited vocabulary, including a very strange word, space. 
And I think, Kester, you've shown beautifully how much we can talk about place. Space, trying to write and talk about space, is as difficult as writing and talking well about sex. It's ungraspable and incredibly difficult to talk about, but it's rather central to architecture. But in the making of it, if we look at this and talk about the Eskimos, it's rather like a carpenter would look at that, and it's not just his linguistic structure that is different. They know how to cut wood. <laughs> and so there's a whole series of other things that come in which are to do with the relationship of thinking, which is really what we're talking about. And we're confusing science, words and language with thinking. Thinking through the hands in the act of making and the words that carpenters use and architects use to provoke and encourage that creativity. And I think there's a difference. And I just want to see if that gets any recognition from the panel. Yes, I think that's right. I think that's right. And I think architects instruct, you know, the real instructions of how you build as well, like a you know, specification. That's, that's architectural writing. That's a completely different type of architectural writing. And I, I, I basically, I agree. <laughs> what, what, um, but I think just to add on that, that there are very considerable difficulties even in the specification writing. It's not a transparent process uh, and that to be able to specify accurately and exactly what an architect wants or intends is fraught with difficulty and many people end up by actually just saying do it like this, giving an example and it's the example, you know, the specimen that's shown that becomes, in fact, the, the desired uh, quality of, of the work. Um, or asking the builder or the contractor to make a test and then see whether that's actually what the result is wanted. That actually to verbalize the quality that you want in the end result defeats most people uh, most of the time. You know, it, it's a real problem. This was a very good question. Just as a, a sort of a, this is not directly speaking to the question, but part of the subtext in the dis discussion that's been uh, going on has been to equate language with thought, and the two things are very, very different. Um, Pre-linguistic children can think they don't have language. There are a large number of species that have um, quite sophisticated thought, ranging from squirrel monkeys to pinyin jays, to chimpanzees who have exquisitely sophisticated thought processes, and yet none of these species have language. So we do have to be careful about equating language with thought. Language does not determine how we think. It shapes it, but it does not determine. And part of what you were also pointing to, I think, is embodied experience, you know, when we talk about using the hands and, and so on in, in the architectural process, the, the process of actually producing the architectural design and so on. A further thing I'll, I'll just say very quickly is that our um, conceptual categories also determine how we engage with the world, including with um, architectural pieces. Just going back to the Inuit, the Inuit traditionally did not have a conceptual category for time as a commodity. So the idea that time is expensive or time um, is something you can waste or save and so on 
was completely alien to them. There's a, there's a nice anecdote from the 1960s where um, a Canadian, an English-speaking Canadian logging a contractor was going to the Inuit, an Inuit town um, to address them, to, to gain their permission to, to, fell, to, to log in their vicinity, and was explaining you know, the practices and what we need to do and so on, and then finished by saying, we need to get on with this because obviously um, time is money. And the translator translated this, sort of shrugged and said, we have to get on with this because a watch costs a lot. <laughs> okay. So there are a number of things there, embodiment, the relationship between time and, and thought, and also the actual categories that we have. A watch costs a lot, and we have to conclude soon. One more question, uh, John Blue. Um, I'm, I'm aware of your Swiss timekeeping role, and, and I hope you'll, you'll uh, put your flag down for a second. I think I'm Northern European, and uh, and I'm aware that we're sitting in a room. I'm aware that we're sitting in a room in London. Um, I'm I'm humbled by Adrian's um, question. I think they're enormously complicated and necessary questions to raise. Um, I've just come back from Scandinavia, where uh, there's a seemingly anti-intellectual stance to discussion and yet there's a very profound architecture and I'm reminded of someone like Rasmussen who would uh, argue that architecture should in itself speak speak for itself and experience is very difficult to communicate and yet I'm very interested in let's say emotions and intellect I'm also reminded of someone like Matisse, who would talk about a painter speaking with his work. And in extreme, from a culture where I don't come from, uh, Japan, where something like wabe-sabe, where an absence of words would be the most profound compliment you could give to a piece of work. What interests me much is in, in England and in Northern Europe, how the word seems often to be far more persuasive as a practicing architect than the work itself. And I think the role of the critic and the journalist and the academic is incredibly valuable. And I'm not so sure there's a question, but if I try and prompt myself, because I think the train's arriving, um, I wonder I wonder if one could talk about, in writing, whether the writing is seen as the work or whether the writing is about the work, and perhaps if both are, are a good thing, particularly in, in England, where we are. Shall I say something about that? Yeah, please do. You're right, there is a problem in Britain which is that we live in a culture that's dominated by literature. And uh, lit literary training is regarded as the superior form of education in everything to do with culture. And visual arts, uh, generally speaking, are denigrated as inferior. So we, we live under a particular regime here, which um, has traditionally, for a long time anyway, um, given low value to non-literary forms of culture. This is a difficulty. But. 
uh, many of us will be familiar with. Um, whether the literary, the, the, I mean, my view of what you're describing is that the verbal and the visual are complementary, that you cannot have one without the other. But, you know, it's only, you know, one can see something, when it's become spoken about, it, it takes on other qualities. It's as soon as you start seeing something as if it's something else, or somebody suggests to you that it is, it might be something else as well as what it appears to you, that it, it becomes rich and interesting. All the things that we value are things about which we are able to talk and exchange um, uh, views about. So, yeah, I mean, language is what gives them richness. The microphone, because we're not going to be able to hear you. I wonder if it comes about through modernism. I wonder if there was a problem <laughs> with modernism, i.e. where abstraction is introduced to such a degree that the language which we employ visually uh, is no longer. So a kind of amnesia or a kind of uh, consumer's Alzheimer's is introduced. And so particularly at the moment, as a practicing architect and teacher, I think people are floundering to get a foothold on what things look like and revisit a kind of continuum of a history pre-modernism that the modernists, and I, I don't know if I am one or not, neglected. They seem to abdicate their responsibility to describe their work, preferring to measure it through function and purpose, whereas someone from the 18th century, say Kant, would talk about the function of beauty. So I wonder if that's also something that we, we, our society, culture, has somehow neglected, and I would argue we need to be reminded of. I'll just quote to you Miss Van der Rohe's comment. Build, don't talk. <laughs> there was a prejudice against language in the 20th century, which I think we where we've recovered from. I think things have changed, but um, there are still residues of it around. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Uh, Jeremy will now conclude. Yes, well, well before we thank uh, uh, Philip and the three speakers in, the, I hope, a proper way, um, just uh, picking up uh, the point that Adrian made about the primacy of, 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 of literacy in, 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 in Britain. I'm reminded of Ruskin's comment, who was perhaps the most articulate, um, sort of, it, it, both visually and verbally, in trying to overcome that divide, in that he was both a very competent painter and, of course, at his best, a great writer and a writer of the experience of seeing. And he said that, you know, the, the, the greatest thing a human soul can do is to see something. Hundreds can, can uh, speak for one who can think, but thousands uh, can uh, think for one who can see. And so he was really saying that what is seeing 
in his words, was poetry, prophecy, and religion in one. So he's putting the sense above the, 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 the language. And I think it's important uh, in thinking about the, uh, this evening called uh, Writing Architecture in an uh, exhibition called Sensing Spaces that we are uh, necessarily able to sense things that are, that are physical, and those sensations become very important. But once we have them, we can move perhaps into imaginative realms which might be about writing and might also be about architecture. Because I think architecture, as Adrian has said, is more than just the, the, the physical stuff. And if one uh, wants to move away from the, uh, the, the, the physical, uh, we might remind, uh, remember what Dr. Johnson said, I think, to Boswell uh, when they were arguing about Bishop Barclay's uh, notion that nothing really existed. And uh, Boswell has said to Johnson, well, do you refute it? And how do you refute it? And uh, Johnson said, I refute it thus and kicked a stone and bruised his toe. Um, probably kicked it harder than I just did. Uh, but anyway, I'd just like to, to, to thank uh, Philip, uh, Viv, Adrian, and Kester.